second now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. The Donald on the world stage. President of the United States traveling abroad for the first time in his presidency, as I'm sure many of you have no doubt already heard, and you've probably heard a bit about it. He is in Israel today. He was in Saudi Arabia over the weekend, and he has uh, already made some proclamations and some waves. Good ones, I should note. Buck Sexton here with you all now. Please do uh, give a ring. We've got a lot to talk about today. Obviously, Trump's big international trip, the beginning of what could be a Trump doctrine, um, what it also means for the future of U.S. foreign policy uh, and the wars we are fighting and the possibility of future conflicts in the Middle East and and uh, further afield. Uh, also going to talk to you a bit about what's going on with Israel and the peace process. President Trump is there today. And then we've got updates with the latest in the uh, Flynn-Russia investigation, uh, a whole bunch of other stories, some Really crazy out there, left-wing progressive stuff going on in the realm of gender studies. That'll be coming up later on in the show. A gender studies paper that you you will literally have to hear it to believe it. And it was a real thing that was published, uh, as well as the, the, the flight of snowflakes from a speech at the University of Notre Dame, my, uh, my uh, fantastic uh, grandfather's alma mater. Only a small group of students left, but uh, we'll talk about that too. So I basically am here with you on a Monday. More show to discuss than I have time for. So let me get right into it. Let's start with Saudi. I know Saudi happened over the weekend. Um, One of the most important things for me, um, as I saw all of this, was, and, and I know that people say, Buck, that's come on. The speech Trump gave. Let's talk about how it was a good speech. Yeah, it, it was a good speech. He did use the term Islamist extremism instead of radical Islamic terrorism, which I think is hmm noteworthy. Uh, Islamist extremism is every bit uh, ac- is, is accurate. It is by no means avoiding the truth of the of the subject matter, but it is a rhetorical shift, which I thought was. Noteworthy in the sense that he's in Saudi Arabia, obviously. He's maybe taking a slightly softer tone as a result of that out of respect to his hosts. But even the press, it seemed, uh, was taken aback by how favorable the Saudi reception was for uh, President Trump as as opposed to what happened with or as, as opposed to the previous reception that President Obama had, and and of course in Israel, there's no question. There's a greater uh, a greater focus on, or a, a greater enthusiasm for Trump's visit than anything I can remember from President Obama. President Trump has visited Israel sooner than his predecessor did by a number of years, 
and is clearly trying to make a real push at a Middle East peace process. But let's talk about Saudi first. I know he gave the speech, and at this point, I could go through it piece by piece. As I said, Islamist extremism, that was uh, one, one, one thing that struck me. Uh, Islamist, just so we're all clear on the terminology, I think it sometimes is worth just a little refresher, even for me, so that I keep it straight in my head and don't get anything muddled or messed up here on air. So you have obviously Islam, which means submission, which is the faith tradition and Abrahamic religion of over 1.7 billion adherents or so. Um, and there's an, an there's a tremendous spectrum of belief within Islam, um, just as you could you could point to the different. Well, there's the main schism between Sunni and Shia, which will factor into our discussion of Trump in Saudi Arabia and U.S. foreign policy in a second. But and that comes from a succession struggle right after the death of uh, the prof, uh, the prophet Muhammad. Um, there was a, there was a decision that had to be made in the Muslim community, the Ummah, which is the term used for the Islamic community overall, which was obviously much smaller then in the seventh century than it is now. There was a decision as to whether it would be um, somebody who was just chosen by the leadership or somebody who was a direct uh, blood relative. Uh, and maybe we can get into the succession after Muhammad another time in some more detail. If you like that as a history deep dive, we could certainly do that. But Sunni versus Shia, that's the primary schism. And then there's all these other variants, and we could talk about um, uh, Sufi, and uh, there's there's a, a tremendous variety. Anyway, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting too far into the weeds on that. The point here being, you've got Islam, you've got Islamism, which some people... I actually remember once I was on a, I was on a date with a girl in D.C., and I said something about how you know, Islamism is a real problem for us. And, you know, um, she was also a, a foreign policy kind of person. And uh, she got very mad at me. And, and I, I said, well, you understand that. And she said, you can't you can't say that about a whole faith. And I said, well, I didn't say Islam. I said Islamism. Islamism is the explicit application of Islam to politics. So it is when all of a sudden you will, not all of a sudden, but it is when you will say that there's no separation between the religious faith and political systems. In fact, they are inextricably linked. And then jihadism is the violent act. Uh, Once one is radicalized, usually one is an Islamist and then can also become a jihadist, although not all Islamists do, certainly only a small percentage do, but jihad is then the violent uh, partaking in in uh, violence on on behalf of the faith, right? So you've got Islam, Islamism, jihadism, and Trump said Islamist extremism. Okay, that was good. He also mentioned uh, principled realism, which I thought was uh, perhaps the beginning of a description of what might be called the Trump doctrine. You know, now pundits, you know, the, the pundit class, the the media types, people like me, you know, all the rest of them. Although I'm not a, I'm not a fancy media type. I'm just a guy at a radio mic. But, and that sounded like I was trying to make it sound like it wasn't fancy. But you know what I mean? I'm not one of these like, uh, you know, network news guys. Um, the doctrine that is uh, given to a president, or that is, it, it's not necessarily what the president says it is, right? It's what the narrative around the president becomes based on his policy decisions. Sometimes it's uh, it's directly stated by a president in one way or another, but in this case, it seems principled realism. It means that Trump will privilege U.S. interests 
first and foremost. Uh, we'll make our allies know who they are. We'll make our enemies aware of who they are. There will be a distinction between the two that's not just rhetorical. Allies will be treated better than enemies. And there will be benefits to being an ally of the United States, and they can count on us and trust us. And enemies should fear our wrath and be wary. Um, also, on the on, on the principled side of it, on the realist side of it, you can see how visiting Saudi Arabia creates an interesting set of its own problems. Uh, the Saudis, as I discussed with you on Friday, can be quite helpful. The the government, the uh, ruling uh, class, the royal family in Saudi Arabia, can be helpful to us in a number of ways. And it looks like we've concluded a major negotiation over an arms deal. Hundreds of billions of dollars of, of arms for the Saudis. Um, but the Saudis are also, and when I say the Saudis, people from Saudi Arabia have been involved in a tremendous amount of terrorism. And the Saudi state has been funding an ideology around the world that often, well, that leads to jihadism much more than it should. Um, so Trump was there discussing his principled realism. And the speech, even for those who are Trump haters, was considered to be pretty good. Um, there was nothing revolutionary in it. It was statesmanlike. He said that you must drive out extremists in your midst. I think he understands that to defeat radical Islamic terrorism or Islamist extremism, as the president said a couple times in the speech, that is an indigenous first fight, meaning that indigenous forces have to take the lead in that fight. We will be their ally in it. And that while we will help them modernize, secularize, and democratize as they, being our allies in the Middle East, as they choose to. Uh, we also won't unnecessarily push them or prod them or force them to do as we say. It's, I'm trying to summarize the overall feel of the speech. I think that's a fair, that's a fair version of Trump in brief uh, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, also, this is the this is the point that I was going to make, and then I went off on a tangent about Islam, Islamism, and jihadism, uh, that Melania Trump did not wear a headscarf. And headscarf politics are so contentious that she did not wear a headscarf I um, must applaud because this is something that is unique in uh, the Islamic tradition, broadly speaking. And that is that even non-believers are expected to comport with uh, religious observances in countries where it is predominantly Muslim. So well, that means that women have to dress in a way that to Western standards is, I think, demeaning and is subjugating to women. And I know that there are uh, lunatic leftists who argue that Islam is the true or, or Muslims are the true feminists because women can't be objectified when they are wearing an abaya, which is what's worn in Saudi Arabia, or a burqa, which is the complete covering, including gauze over the eyes in Afghanistan, something that I have seen. And let me tell you, it haunts you. Uh, yes, it is impossible to objectify a woman when she has a big blue tarp over her, uh, but it is also much easier to think of her not as a human being, but as property uh, and as a form of subjugation, eliminating one's appearance at all in public, meaning eliminating one's presence in the public square, is quite an effective tool of oppression. I find it fascinating that so many, so many liberals, 
leftists, progressives in this country will go to extreme lengths to make excuses for the regressive tendencies within the Islamic world, particularly towards women and towards gays. Uh, They will, sure, they'll condemn the treatment of uh, gays and lesbians in uh, Muslim countries, but they won't make it a focus. They they won't they don't spend a lot of time talking about it, and they also are much more willing, I think, to to give a, a pass to Islamic oppression uh, of of women whenever we're talking about what they could do in the world for women's rights, um, because it's well, there are a, a series of complicated reasons why the left has adopted Islam as a uh, or maybe even co-opted it in some ways as an ally in the fight against traditional Christianity, conservatism, uh, Western imperialism. Uh, The left believes that Islam is a faith tradition of minorities, and therefore all the attendant victimology, so all the victimhood status of minorities, of non-white minorities around the world, are contained within Islam, and then also it is a counterbalance to Christianity. This is, uh, there's a, a whole series of ways in which the left views and and of course in the context of terrorism um, many progressives like to um, express how refined and enlightened they are by suggesting that you know they're they're not any more concerned about islamic terrorism than any other form of terrorism in fact they think that it's intellectually honest and it is worthwhile to say that Christian terrorism is just as bad. In fact, in America, it's worse, right? White Christian terrorism is worse in America. And we sit around thinking, how, how do they come to these conclusions? Um, but Melania did not cover her head. And I think uh, in Saudi Arabia, I find that to be a nice little private revolution of one uh, because it's specific to... Um, Islam that women are, and I know people are going to say, Buck, what about other, there are other places I know where they're, in fact, in uh, in India, there, in, in Hindu majority parts of India, there are expectations about dress code. In Israel, in some parts, there are expectations about dress code. Um, but for the first lady of the United States to uh, not feel compelled in this case, uh, I think is Laudable. I think that uh, it deserves a, a little quiet applause. Well, not so quiet because I'm here on radio telling you all about it. But there's something that is particularly pernicious about the Islamic practice of demanding obedience with regard to speech, with regard to dress, any number of areas from even non believers. Hmm. Isn't that. Uh... That's interesting. All right. Um, we've got a lot more to talk about on the foreign policy front. Obviously, uh, Trump is in Israel today. We've got our friend uh, da- uh, David Effoon from the Algaminer joining us later on to talk about that. Uh, we've also got to discuss Flynn and the investigation. Uh, it's it's a ton of show to get through, my friends. We're going to do it together. I'm excited. 844-900-BUCK. We'll be right back. Team, it should be noted that while there are some neighborhoods... Uh, ultra-Orthodox neighborhoods in uh, Israel where women are expected to dress modestly. That's different than being told you have to dress like a, you know, with the full-on beekeeper suit. Um, And it's also not a function 
of state policy with force, at least to my understanding. Uh, I do know that in Saudi Arabia, the, uh, the religious police will come around with sticks and arrest and harass and sometimes even beat uh, women for not uh, wearing the preposterous dress code of uh, Saudi Arabia. So uh, I think Melania Trump not wearing an abaya is uh, progress. Um, I, I thought it was, I liked it. I think it was the way to go. By the way, Trump is in Israel today and tomorrow. And then Wednesday, he goes to Vatican City, where he will have an audience with uh, Pope Francis. Melania Trump will be with him for that one. And then on, uh, well, then also on Wednesday, he will be in Brussels. And then Friday in Sicily, you know, the, the the Brussels trip will be interesting because one of the main talking points you get from the left about why Trump is not good on foreign policy uh, is what he has said about NATO in the past. And I've this is where they take Trump uh, seriously, but not literally on foreign policy can sometimes come in handy because I've never thought that he was going to be a problem for NATO. Um, I think the more that he. And I don't say this in, in a uh, troublesome fashion here. I'm not trying to be a troublemaker, but the more that he learns about NATO, I think the greater he has a respect and understand. In fact, this is what Trump has said, so I'm not even doing analysis here. I'm really just repeating what he said. Um, so NATO w- will be an interesting part of that. And I'm hoping at least then we can stop hearing, oh, well, NATO and... Because it also ties into the Vladimir Putin undermining American democracy by... Uh, reaching out to, you know, to Trump and and his senior advisors and this big Kremlin conspiracy because they want to break apart NATO, which which has been a desire of the Kremlin for a long time, right? NATO is in fact an alliance that was formed to oppose the Warsaw Pact, that was opposed to the uh, that was uh, created to oppose the Soviet Union, and now it does have as part of its mandate the opposition of Russian expansionism. Um, But the NATO meeting, we'll talk more about that later on this week. Uh, And then in Sicily, he's going to participate in some uh, participate in G7 meetings. So there you have that's Friday and Saturday in in Sicily. Always wanted to go to Sicily. Never made it there. Uh, One day, perhaps. Love Italian food. Um, I want to talk to you about Iran because that's the well, I think that's the single biggest foreign policy takeaway of. Trump's entire trip, and it factors into uh, what we should think of the Obama administration before and Obama's foreign policy, because the tone and the um, uh, positioning that Donald Trump has had in both Saudi Arabia and Israel vis-a-vis Iran is, um, I think, the single most important aspect of the entire trip in many ways. Uh, Some are saying that he has taken sides in the Sunni-Shia sectarian civil war within Islam, which would be a very big deal. I wouldn't go that far, um, but there are some very serious implications of uh, doubling down on this Saudi Saudi Arabia as a bulwark of our foreign policy choice. So we're going to hit that and more. Let's talk Iran in just a few. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. 
much work to be done. That means honestly confronting the crisis of Islamic extremism and the Islamists and Islamic terror of all kinds. He did say Islamic extremism. And as I said, he, he mentioned Islamist extremism a couple of times as well. Um, so Trump has called out terrorism. This is, of course, not different from what any president would do in the sense that they're all opposed to terrorism, but it's a question of uh, how do we talk about it? How do we approach it? What do we do with our allies and what will work best? Um Iran is a major issue. Uh, The Obama administration's foreign policy over the course of eight years in the Middle East, I know we we can talk about the bowing and we can talk about leading from behind, which which was the strategy in Libya. But more than that, uh, President Obama had decided that the same way he would do, his administration would do outreach to Cuba and would break the stalemate of diplomatic relations or break break the stalemate of uh, of a, a diplomatic thaw with Cuba on a unilateral U.S. going forward and saying, hey, let's be friends kind of basis. Same thing happened in the case of Iran. I mean, President Obama had his negotiators show up and say, we got to get a deal here. There's got to be a deal over the nuclear program. And that deal um, meant that other policies in the region, and we'll never really know the full extent of this, but other policies in the region were put on the back burner, put into a secondary status. It was considered not uh, not as important, perhaps, to tackle uh, the problem of the burgeoning, uh, the, the growing civil war in Syria because of Iranian interests in propping up the Assad regime. For example, you'll never be able to prove this per se, but Obama's interest in getting a deal with Iran almost certainly influenced the degree that he was willing to engage or that his administration was willing to engage in policies that, while clearly in the interest of the United States, would have upset the Iranians and maybe given them pause or even cause for withdrawing from these uh, these talks that were ongoing. And what we have now is an Iranian regime that will receive a series of sanctions uh, relief as well as opening of its economy and its, its markets to the global market. And it will become a richer, stronger country. And it doesn't have to destroy its infrastructure for uh, nuclear energy it leaves most of it in place it it is mothballed so to speak and eventually it'll be a much more robust nuclear infrastructure so they get to keep most of the gear and they certainly keep the know-how and they have a as long as a deal's in place a guarantee from the international community more or less that there's not going to be an airstrike that there won't be any u.s military action taken to stop the iranians from uh well to stop the Iranians from doing any number of things, because it's not just their nuclear program that, of course, bothers us. The Iranians support terrorist groups throughout the Middle East. The Iranians uh, deploy their own special forces and uh, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, IRGC, uh, into conflicts. And, and, and they are a constant 
uh, irritant to all of our allies. I mean, more than that. I mean, they, they have blood on their hands, but they're always opposing us, whether it's just rhetorically or otherwise. So the Iranians are doing all kinds of bad stuff. And they are preparing for a, a conflict, I, I believe, at some point in the not too distant future in order to expand their power at the expense of their great Sunni Arab rival, which at this point would be Saudi Arabia. So this gets us into the Muslim civil, the sorry, the Muslim sectarian civil war. When you look at a map of the Middle East and you, you break it down this way, there is an immediate sense of, oh, gosh, there is some real clarity that comes to mind. You see, the U.S. right now, we, we have interests in, well, we have interests in pretty much all the Middle East, right? But um, when you look at a map of the Middle East and the trouble that is ongoing in a number of countries, including countries where there's a U.S. military, special forces presence, Iraq, Syria, um, there is the following dynamic. In Syria, you have a Shia Alawite regime, the Assad regime in charge of the country with the backing of the Iranian state, which means also the help and backing of Hezbollah, a Shia terrorist organization based out of Lebanon, uh, fighting against a majority Sunni Arab population in Syria. And the Sunni Arab population has, as part of it, the Islamic State, Jabhat al-Nusra, which is the Al-Qaeda, the specific Al-Qaeda franchise in Syria, and so you have a Sunni Shia fight in Syria. In Iraq, we were in the midst of what was a sectarian civil war from 2006, 7 to 2009 in, in Iraq, uh, because that's a country that's divided between Sunni and Shia, and that tension lingers to this day. And I wonder what's going to happen once Mosul is cleared, because you have Shia militias uh, of dubious, well, of dubious loyalty in the sense that they certainly take some of their orders, it would seem, from their Iranian overlords. Uh, there are Shia militias that have been mobilized in Iraq. So you have a Sunni-Shia fight and, and a dangerous sectarian dynamic between these two strains of Islam in Iraq, where we have thousands of U.S. soldiers and we are allied with and partnered with the Iraqi regime. You have a Sunni-Shia dynamic playing out in Yemen, um, right now, where there's also a civil war. In fact, Saudi Arabia has been intervening in Yemen with its air force, uh, including some very nasty incidents with large numbers of civilian casualties. Um, so that's a, that, that's a, a part of the dynamic in Yemen as well. Um, and in in Bahrain, there's a Sunni Shia dynamic where you have the U, uh, you you have major U.S interests uh, you of course iran is the shia country um but you go and you look at all the different all the different flashpoints major flashpoints right now in the middle east and there is a a dynamic of uh, sunnis fighting it out with shia politically militarily and you know in every which way for dominance and iran is the primary sponsor of all of those um all of those Shia groups that are maybe minorities in a country, but fighting against, uh, you know, there there's Shia in Saudi Arabia. I mean, you, you go down the list and there's friction. Uh, there's friction between them. So uh, when we go in heavy with the Saudis and say, we're going to sell you all this advanced weaponry and 
and you're a, a good ally and, you know, Trump's doing the sword dance and all this other stuff, um, that certainly sends a signal because we do not have a Shia partner that we work closely with, really. There's not one that is in charge of a major nation state, the exception being the Iraqi government. Um, and there we're just trying to keep it from becoming a sectarian issue as much as we possibly can, right? I mean, you have uh, 60% of Iraq roughly is Shia. Uh, it's maybe, in, in terms of Arab, uh, 60% Shia Arab and maybe I think about 30% Sunni Arab and then or 20% Sunni Arab and then 10 to 15% Kurdish and then the rest is a mix. So it is a big issue. Uh, this is a a centuries in the making fight that's playing out before us in a volatile region of the world with a tremendous amount of oil reserves. And also, of course, because all it takes is to get on a flight um, and you can have somebody who's trained in this region become a major terrorist threat outside of the region. So we can't just ignore it as a security threat. And now with the Internet, you have radicalization going on in the United States. You have radicalization going on in Europe where people have never even set foot in the Middle East, but they will become devoted adherents to this jihadist ideology. So, yeah, we're, we're doubling down with the Saudis, um, but that, that's, going to, uh, that's going to play out in many unforeseeable ways, I am sure. Um, the Saudi state, as I said to you, the, the stability of the Saudi state right now looks uh, quite secure, but if you go back to Egypt around 2010 and you said, well, everything looks good here, Mubarak's got this thing under control, uh, it wouldn't have been long before you felt pretty wrong on that one. Um, so that that's, for me, the, the major policy takeaway is just that Trump is shoring up the Saudis as the main bulwark against Iranian expansionism. Um, but that does look a bit like we are, whether we choose to or not, taking sides in the massive Sunni-Shia uh, fight that's going on right now in the Middle East. So... There will be policy implications from that, my friends. All right, I uh, want to switch gears and talk a bit about... Well, we're going to get into Israel, I think, more later on in the show, actually. Um, maybe we'll talk a little bit about it now. We'll do Israel, and then we'll talk Mike uh, or General Flynn. And then I've got some other fun stories, including some fake news. There's some actual fake news from over the weekend. Um, and all kinds of assorted news stories. I will be right back. Stay with me. I have breaking news to share with you all. Uh, it's unfortunately uh, the nightmarish breaking news that you never want to have to be the one to tell anybody about. But here we are. Um, this is from the police in Manchester City in the United Kingdom. Uh, this is in the UK. Uh, there's an Ariana Grande concert that had been uh, underway there. And this is what the police statement says. Emergency services are currently responding to reports of an explosion at Manchester Arena. There are a number of confirmed fatalities and others injured. Uh, please avoid the area as first responders work tirelessly at the scene. Details of a casualty bureau will follow as soon as possible. That's from the official uh, Greater Manchester Police uh, account. So uh, it seems very likely at this point we're dealing with a, an explosion, a bomb at uh, Manchester Arena. 
Uh, and there are already lots of reports coming in on social media. And this is very tough, right? Because on the one hand, there are clearly eyewitnesses who are sharing information about what, they, what they've what they seen and, and what's going on. But you don't know if they're, um, they just happen to be uh, wrong on some of the details or they think they're sharing them in earnest. Or you could have people that as... as uh, Bizarre as this would seem, people like to just make things up, and we're not sure until we get greater confirmation of what happened here, but it looks very likely um, that there was a terrorist attack of some kind at Manchester Arena. It is not confirmed. I cannot report that that has happened, but we do have the Manchester police saying there are reports of an explosion and there are confirmed fatalities. So people are dead outside of Manchester uh, or at the Manchester Arena at this Ariana Grande concert. That much we do know. Um, this certainly seems like it is a, an intentional incident terrorism, although until we get further details, I, I, I don't know much more about it. Uh, well, nobody knows more about it right now who's following it in the news media, but it looks like we have, again, breaking news here of a possible terrorist incident uh, an explosion with confirmed fatalities at the Manchester Arena in Ariana Grande uh, concert that was going on there. Um, we will have more for you as as we go um, throughout the show here. I'll be watching this very closely. Um, there will be some telltales, uh, I would assume, very quickly here about what um, what has happened. Uh, but this then takes this is perhaps a, a place where we can transition into what do we do about all of this? This is what President Trump said in Saudi Arabia about uh, jihadist terrorism and, and their ideology. There can be no coexistence with this violence. There can be no tolerating it, no accepting it, no excusing it, and no ignoring it. Every time a terrorist murders an innocent person, and falsely invokes the name of God, it should be an insult to every person of faith. Terrorists do not worship God. They worship death. In fact, that's a very apt description of uh, jihadist ideology and the philosophy of, of jihad. Uh, there is a, a cult of martyrdom, and it's, it's different in, in the... Uh, in the Christian conception of martyrdom, we I, mean, I remember this from being in Jesuit school and going to Catholic school for many, many years before that, uh, we think of martyrs as people who willingly give their lives for their faith, meaning they will not renounce the faith and they will be, um, or they have been executed, uh, even burned at the stake, uh, killed as, uh, as believers. Uh, in the jihadist conception of martyrdom, you try to kill as many other people as you possibly can as you give your life. Uh, this is a this is a very important and very uh, worthwhile to note uh, distinction. So, how we fight against terrorism going forward? I, I think that the the Trump administration is taking a very well. Any administration would take a close view of this, right? And this is just a first step with Saudi Arabia this trip overseas. And I'm going to be honest with you, the analysis of a president's overseas trip really outstrips the policy impact that it has for the most part. Um, this is a, a lot of it is for the photo ops and the optics, but some of those some of those photo ops and optics are 
pretty profound. You have President Trump's uh, President Trump visiting the uh, the Western Wall in Jerusalem, for example. I believe the first president to do that. Uh, that is, there is symbolism that everybody forgets in a day, and then there's symbolism that will remain for quite a long time afterwards. And I think that this, particularly Trump's trip in Israel, uh, will fall into the latter category. Um, but this may turn into, um, he may be dealing with terrorism in a way that he, uh, as, as a policy matter that he had not anticipated on this trip based on, again, that breaking news that I was sharing with you. There is a, it is confirmed that there was an explosion at an Ariana Grande concert in uh, Manchester in the United Kingdom. And it is confirmed that there were fatalities. We do not know the cause of the explosion. We do not have more details right now. But the uh, immediate gut reaction that most people, of course, would have is that that sounds like terrorism, a crowded public venue, fatalities, an explosion. Um, But then again, uh, I do always try to sound a note of caution in the reporting of these uh, these issues when, for example, I, I got word earlier last week that there was a car that had run over a number of people, including fatalities here in Times Square, it, it would not have been a stretch at all to assume, well, this is similar to what we saw in Nice, uh, France, and in Germany, and in and in UK, and in London, um, with a vehicle attack. But no, it was just a crazy, it was just a crazy person without, people say, well, Buck, what's the difference between, a cra- why do you say this? that's just a crazy person or somebody who's lost it versus, you know, Islamic terrorism is something to be more afraid of? Uh, Well, Islamic terrorism is part of a broader movement, a broader ideology that seeks to destroy Western civilization. Uh, A crazy person is just somebody who's decided that they're going to lash out and uh, destroy lives and throw their own life away in the the process um, because they have a disconnect from reality or they've had some sort of a a breakdown. But they're they're not doing it because they think they're going to bring down Western civilization and they don't have the help of terrorist organizations and supportive infrastructure for their acts online and in countries all over the Muslim world. That's that's why there's a distinction. It, it, it is a difference. It matters. Um, but that incident was not terrorism. So I, I want to be cautious on this until we have more details about what's going on at this Ariana Grande concert. Um, we got to talk about General Flynn coming up here next. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. Just because Donald Trump is away, just because our president is tending to business abroad, does not mean the media narrative is going to in any way slow down when it comes to Russia, collusion, allegations, obstruction of justice, that's now at the heart of uh, much of the reporting. And, of course, the fate, uh, the future of General Michael Flynn, former national security advisor for a very short period of time in the Trump administration. He was fired, um, but Democrats now view him as... Well, I think he is the uh, the way that they can turn this into uh, the they can turn this into a, a major liability for the administration. That's Flynn is the key. I think that's what they are focusing in on here. Um, but first, I got there's a Washington Post story. Trump asked intel. We'll get to Flynn in a second. Trump asked intelligence chiefs. By the way, this ju- oh my god, this just broke. 
I have more breaking news for you, everybody. This this story uh, I thought maybe was was up a little earlier today, and somehow it have, it had evaded the Buck radar, which is unusual. Uh, but this has just broken in the last hour, so I have. It was so interesting that these major newspaper reports keep coming out later on in the day. You almost get the sense it's like that they want to they want to give a little lift to the primetime news networks that are that are the heart of the anti-Trump resistance. Right? So they want to they want to feed you know Rachel Maddow and Anderson Cooper and and others the the best stuff they can right before they go on air to make it a more exciting uh, more exciting viewing at night. Um, I, I don't know. I, I it does seem just a, maybe it is just a coincidence, but it seems pretty coincidental, doesn't it? That we've got how many times have those of you listen to this show have I been able to say, "Whoa, we got big breaking news here," and it's. It's breaking news, you know. It's not like somebody, you know, lost their uh, their favorite Sharpay and it was found in a local park or something. I mean, this is real stuff. Um, never been much of a Sharpay guy myself, but I like all dogs for the most part. All right, here's the story. Pardon me for the complete non sequitur there. Trump asked intelligence chiefs to push back against FBI collusion probe after Comey revealed its existence. Got to read to you a little bit of this, and then we will dive into it together. And I haven't even gotten to the latest on Flynn yet. Here's a little preview of that. I'm, I'm worried the, general, the general's got some, some rough stuff ahead. That's my, my guess. That's my assessment right now. Okay, hold on. Here's in the Washington Post, though. President Trump asked two of the nation's top intelligence officials in March to help him push back against an FBI investigation into possible coordination between his campaign and the Russian government, according to current and former officials. Trump made separate appeals to the director of national intelligence, Daniel Coates, and to the uh, and to Admiral Michael S. Rogers, the director of the National Security Agency, urging them to publicly deny the existence of any collusion during the 2016 election. Coates and Rogers refused to comply with the requests, which they both deemed to be inappropriate, according to two current and two former officials who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss private communications with the president. Uh, Trump sought the assistance of Coates and Rogers after FBI Director James Comey told the House Intelligence Committee on March 20th that the FBI was investigating the nature of any links between individuals associated with the Trump campaign and the Russian government and whether there was any coordination between the campaign and Russia's efforts. Okay. This is uh, this is going to get a lot of attention now. Uh, this there, there are a few a few quick thoughts on this that I have right because this is like I said I, I'm I just read this in the break and now I'm sharing it with you this is the latest salvo anti-Trump salvo the latest anti-Trump barrage from the Washington Post here it is uh, they're they're gonna tr- they're they've got Nixon on the on the brain my friends they think that the the cover up is where they're gonna get the the Trump administration and I gotta say. I don't believe there was an initial, quote, crime with the collusion. Well, not that you should put quotes in the crime. You know what I mean? I, but I don't believe that there was an initial act here. But if the White House isn't careful, um, they're going to have some real real trouble. Uh, if the House falls into Democrat hands in 
2018, which I think there have to be 24 seats would have to switch switch sides. Um, but that's that's not impossible. If the narrative becomes that Trump engaged in obstruction and enough people believe that, or if it looks enough like that happened and Trump loses the House, uh, he may not get removed via the, the Senate's procedures, but he, he may get impeached, which would be bad. Doesn't look good. Uh, now, I know that's a ways down the line, and I'm jumping a whole bunch of steps, and I understand that. Um, but this uh, this is... This doesn't look good for the administration. I don't know what else to say. Uh, I'm not that, that's not to suggest that I believe it necessarily or that this is accurate. If it is accurate, though, can we just state that this president has very few people that he can trust around him? And those who were saying that Trump needed to bring in uh, political experts instead of trusted loyalists, well, you know, uh, Obama was surrounded by people who were loyal to Obama in the White House. Uh, you did not see that was a say what you will about his terrible policies and the destruction wrought at home and around the world during the Obama administration. That was um, that was a White House that was disciplined when it came to no leaks. Uh, you did not hear disparaging leaks from within that White House. You have now on a regular basis senior officials who seem to be, unless you believe that the New York Post, I'm sorry, the uh, Washington Post and the New York Times are just lying, but you have uh, senior officials who will share their communications with the President of the United States and the Oval Office with the press. How can the President conduct his business? How can the President trust in the counsel of those nonpartisan actors who are part of the executive branch, who are supposed to be helping the President defend this country, protect its interests, um, how can he trust them when he keeps seeing these leaks in the papers? I, I know that there will be some pundits and analysts, uh, some folks out there who will just say, well, you know, it's all lies. Do we know that? I don't know that. I, I can't say it. I, mean, I know they do lie sometimes or they do get it very wrong. They get it egregiously wrong. In fact, later on in the show, I'll talk to you about a time that they got it very, uh, quite obviously wrong. But um, that doesn't mean that they get it wrong every time. And Trump in any way trying to influence members of the executive branch to push on the FBI's investigation, even if there's no underlying issue. This is, by the way, why I am so opposed to the special counsel, because that just takes for a lot of stuff now goes behind closed doors. So we won't even know very much, which means that the media machinery of Trump collusion speculation plays a much larger role in all of this. And I I think that the pressure for there to be convictions that are process convictions of lower level people along the way becomes very high. The so you know the, the scooter Libby effect, if you will. But here we have yet another yet another story from the Washington Post saying that Trump did this. And then you have the New York Times. This is this stuff is coordinated. We all get that, right? And there's there's no way that these stories aren't being timed with each other and with the uh, in the news cycle to create maximum damage to the administration uh, and and foster the kind of political pressure that uh, really creates problems 
um, that 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 causes a a jump in uh, public outrage at the administration, and that also makes the Republicans in the Congress start to get a little a little wimpy about stuff. Now, who knows what they're going to do? So this is the new. So the Washington Post got its piece saying that Trump, and it just broke again, breaking news from the last hour here, that Trump asked intelligence chiefs to push back against the FBI collusion probe um, after Comey talked about it publicly, which they're going to say, of course, and I don't know the full context here, and context is very important in these discussions. It's uh, You can't really know what's going on unless you have the context, um, but doesn't the story doesn't look good. You can tell me it's fake news. You can tell me you don't trust it. Fine, but this is another one of these stories that's going to get a tremendous amount of play in the media and a lot of traction. And uh, I, th- I think, uh, I think the mainstream media believes that they can just wear, wear down this administration. Um, they, they, there must be people in some of these newsrooms who think that they will get Trump to resign. That if, if they make it miserable enough for him, he will just say, I've, I've had enough. And look, Man, I, I got to be honest with you. I mean, I, I like a good, I like a good and righteous fight when, when the time comes. Um, but man, if I were a billionaire and a nice family, and I could go hang out or play a lot of golf and you know read books and hang out <laughs> at seventy, that's what I'd be doing. I, I would not. Be, so I, I give Trump a lot of credit for that. Um, you know, he, he didn't have to do this. And I know there's there are a lot of theories out there that, oh, it's because he's a megalomaniac and he's, you know, he's crazy or whatever. But I don't know. Um, it is it is not fun to be in Trump's role. OK, so that's the the Washington Post has a story about the intelligence chiefs pushing back against collusion. Then you got Mike Flynn. And here's what The New York Times has this also from today, a little earlier today. Um, Michael Flynn misled Pentagon about his Russia ties. This is now this is from a Democrat. Uh, this has been put out there publicly from the top Democrat on the House Oversight Committee. So it's politicized, as we all know. But here's what it says. Michael Flynn, President Trump's former national security advisor, misled Pentagon investigators about his income from companies in Russia and contacts with officials there when he applied for a renewal of his top secret security clearance last year according to a letter released Monday by the top Democrat on the House Oversight Committee. Mr. Flynn, who resigned 24 days into the Trump administration, told investigators in February 2016 that he had received no income from foreign companies and had only insubstantial contact with foreign nationals, according to the letter. In fact, Mr. Flynn had sat two months earlier beside President Vladimir Putin of Russia at a Moscow gala for RT, the Kremlin Finance Television Network, which paid Mr. Flynn more than $45,000 to attend the event and give a separate speech. His failure to make those disclosures and his apparent attempt to mislead the Pentagon could put Mr. Flynn in further legal jeopardy. Intentionally lying to federal investigators is a felony punishable by up to five years in prison. Uh, Look, also, I also got to put this in the not good category. Uh, And there's not a lot of uh, he said, he said on this because I, I'm familiar with these forms. I had a top secret clearance. I, I get it. You know, you, um, you go through this whole process and it's all, uh, it's all on the record. 
Right? You go through this process and there's a lot of paperwork. So now you get, you know, it's, it's one of the reasons why I'm glad I left the government. I mean, there's just so much of this stuff that you have to do and deal with. And if you really think about every single page you sign and deal with, you're never going to sleep at night. Um, because the moment you become a political target, target either within your own uh, agency or I can't speak to the military side, but I, I, I have friends that have told me stories that are pretty terrifying about when the military wants to make an example of you for process reasons, usually about clearance stuff or whatever. Uh, it's, it is not fun. Uh, it is rough. And you go through all this, and it, it doesn't have the intent. The intended effect, of course, is for counter espionage reasons and they they think that this will be uh well it's that's the whole purpose of the security clearance process right to make sure that you are one trustworthy and two you're not a foreign spy or or being run by foreign spies um if flynn i can say this to you if flynn if there was a box that said have you gotten any foreign money on flynn's security clearance forms and he said nah i haven't gotten any foreign money i i, I that doesn't sound good to me and I know that we are in a mode here where it is a siege mentality for this White House. The media is being constantly unfair to this White House and everybody in it. I get that. And I, I try to be completely uh, fair to the Trump administration and am an advocate for the Trump administration openly at the same time. Right. So I'm, I'm out in the open about that. I, I am pro-Trump White House. Let's go. Let's drain the swamp. Let's do all these things that they've been talking about. But if... Flynn's signing his name to stuff under penalty of perjury that is very inaccurate. Um, I, I know people are going to say, Buck, you know, come on, you've served this country honorably and everything. I agree. But I can tell you this, some much lower level person that did this would be in big trouble. Big, big trouble. If, if, if what I... Anyway... Uh, well, I, I got to run a break and run along here. 844-900-2825. What do you think of these uh, these double this double hit piece here from from two different or you know this uh, uh, hitting them at both ends here from the New York Times, the Washington Post, New York Times saying Flynn lied and maybe in legal jeopardy on his forms, and the Washington Post saying that Trump tried to get Intel chiefs to shut down the Russia probe or push back on it. Oh, oh my. Hit a break. We'll be right back. Team Buck, I just want to update you on the uh, the breaking news. Uh, terrible stuff out of the United Kingdom. At the Manchester Arena and Ariana Grande concert, there are multiple deaths, uh, many wounded as well. Thousands of concert goers uh, fled a, a what has been reported as a large explosion, a massive bang. And uh, so certainly seems like we've got a bomb here and um, no more, no additional details beyond that right now. But uh, if, if this isn't terrorism, I, I, I don't know what it could be. Um, so we shall see. Uh, we'll stay on this. Also, I did not mention before and I mentioned that Michael Flynn, General Flynn has invoked his Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. So he will not be testifying. He has invoked the Fifth. And, of course, those who believe that Flynn is guilty of something are saying, see, he's guilty, and it doesn't help that I believe there was a tweet from Flynn a while back saying that only guilty people plead the Fifth. So that's not that's not great. 
It's not great. Look, there's some people you can listen to who are going to tell you everything Trump does is great. No matter what he and everything around him, everyone does is amazing. I know this is a street fight, but I'm not going to tell you that during the political street fight, you know, when one of our guys takes a hit, like, hey, he didn't even feel that. No, this is bad. This is not, this is Michael Flynn, maybe, maybe the member of the Trump administration that is, that is fed to the, fed to the beast here, so to speak. I am, con- I, I would be concerned. I am concerned. Um, I think he's a, he's a, a good man with a, with a fantastic record of service to his country who may have made some mistakes and those mistakes will be magnified because of the press and they may call for him to pay a much heavier price than he would have otherwise. We'll see. Uh, I don't have a crystal ball here. Maggie in Mississippi, WBUV. What's up, Maggie? Hey. Hey, Buck. How are you doing today? I'm all right. You know, it's a kind of a, it's a, it's a nasty rainy day here in New York City and a lot of, a lot of rough news. But other than that, I'm okay, I guess. It's nasty and rainy down here in Mississippi too. But anyway, <clears throat> my comp, my, my comment is about this this whole um, Trump asking the intelligence uh, people to 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 push back on the Russia probe. Yeah. Why did it take two months for this to come out rather than come out immediately? Plus, not only that, if Trump did, wouldn't that be considered a felony impeding justice? Um, uh, impeding justice. Um, obstruction know, of justice. Yeah. Uh, obstruction, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm pretty good on the laws for a guy who never went to law school. Um, I, I, obviously, obstruction is a crime. Uh, so does it constitute obstruction? It depends on the context of the conversation. And there's a difference between inappropriate and illegal, you know, and, and I hope that we can all keep in mind that that's a very it, important distinction. Um, but I it's just like the same thing with asking Flynn or asking uh, Comey to to I hope you drop. Yeah, I know. I know. It's a similar. This is a very similar kind of uh, discussion, a very similar place in the argument. Maggie, you ask excellent questions for which I, I don't have clear or readily available answers. But let me think on it. And thank you for calling in. Shields High and team. We're going to be back in just a few. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are bold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Welcome back, team. We have Lucian Wintrich on the phone. He is the White House correspondent for Gateway Pundit. He's a political uh, artist and commentator. Uh, Lucian, thank you so much for giving us a ring again. Thank you for having me. Um, so so you say, I see this is up on thegatewaypundit.com, that you, quote, overhear White House reporters disparaging Trump. This is not surprising, but, ooh, I want to hear the details. I mean, it's, it's incredible. I mean, and this has happened, this is going on before nearly every single briefing. The reporters are uh, trashing the president, trashing the press secretary, um, I mean, it, and then they, they go uh, off to their radio shows or they write their articles and pretend that they're going uh, into this without bias. I mean, you know, some of these reporters will, will audibly scoff uh, while the conference itself is even going on. I mean, they're, they're acting, it's, it's children. It's, it's kind of amazing. 
And when, you know, you have reporters that are all congregating in this fashion, I mean, the echo chamber effect is very real on campus, meaning that professors know that if they don't take a certain line, that others who are their peers are going to look down upon them, criticize them, even ostracize them. I assume in the uh, White House, uh, in, in the West Wing, it's the same deal for those correspondents and reporters. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I, they are part of a uh, very smug little cartel, and none of them uh, have stepped out of line. They'll um, basically pay attention to what these White House correspondence board members are saying to do, and uh, everything they write, everything they ask is going to be a reflection of that. It, it's humorously transparent. What do you think about the reports that there's going to be another shakeup that, uh, what was it, Priebus, uh, Reince Priebus and Bannon, I think, went home early from the big foreign trip. We, we know that Sean Spicer's name's also been tossed around as possibly being replaced in the near future. Is that just, uh, is, is that the press corps as gossip columnists, or is that is that for real in your estimation? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, uh, I didn't know what to think at first, uh, because I, I do tend to read a lot of their bogus reports, but I... Currently, do have it on good authority that a lot of this is is just nonsense. The media is trying to spin. Um, there, everything's highly, highly exaggerated. There aren't going to be any huge shakeups or whatever they're claiming. And I, I've talked to specific members of the administration who I won't name, who uh, yeah, who say it's just absolute ludicrous what they're printing. Do you get the sense at all that some of the reporters? feel like they have and what i mean i mean specifically those who are covering the white house and are in the west wing and, and engage in these press briefings do you think some of them uh, do they ever express any misgivings about being so clearly one-sided and and dedicated to uh, to ending trump's time in office i mean they, they it seems to me like a lot of them just want him out and anything short of trump either resigning or being impeached and removed will be insufficient for some members of the press um, I mean, it's, it's just, it's kind of amazing. You know, since day one, since he started, they've had that exact same attitude, that they're just trying to look for any um, non-existent smoking gun to try to get Trump out of there. Uh, it's, I think they're going to be very disappointed that that's absolutely not happening. Um, all, these, all these accusations against Trump, against the administration, are just so wildly uh, inaccurate. And, you know, half of them, half of these things that they're acting... Uh, as if they're the most egregious things they've ever heard, um, happen tenfold under the Obama administration. Is there anything that uh, you think is not getting enough attention right now that is uh, either that is a White House agenda item? That Are there policies that are being either discussed or pursued? I mean, you know, if, if it wasn't just all Trump, Russia, and, oh, Flynn is uh, asserting his Fifth Amendment uh, privilege, what would people be talking about down there? You know, I, I, I really think the concentration right now should remain on the, uh, on the budget, what's going on in Congress with the budget. I mean, that, that is something that will affect every American. Um, and that's, that is what a lot of people, I think, are more interested in than these uh, fake scandals that the mainstream media keeps coming up with every other day. Um, I mean, they, they, their job, ideally, is to actually report on policy and things that do affect average Americans. Uh, can you shed any light on the claim, I see this in, in thehill.com, that uh, InfoWars, which is the website and platform of Alex Jones, was a- approved for White House press credentials? Um, is is uh, a one-day pass is what I'm reading here. A one-day pass is not a, that doesn't, right, right. it's not hard to get, right? Uh, no, th- those aren't that hard to get. Um, 
it's it's sort of part of a a uh, sort of longer longer uh, I guess uh, effort to get full credentialing. That actual process takes anywhere from a half year to a year. So yeah, Infowars right now they're on daily passes. Those those are really not that hard to get. Um, I haven't I haven't met their new uh, correspondent yet, but I'm uh, I'm excited too. Hey, I mean I will say as many as many uh, people who aren't part of the mainstream media. Uh, in that room, the better. I think it's already having a, a good effect. Uh, just having other reporters actually keep tabs on these uh, partisan hacks who are churning out false stories day after day. We're speaking to Lucian Wintrich. He's the White House correspondent for Gateway Pundit. You can read his latest at thegatewaypundit.com. Uh, w- when do you think it becomes too much with this press corps, Lucian? W- when do you think, uh, I- is there a point at which the People running the various news bureaus and, and news organizations will say you've got to make it seem a little less hostile, or is just is is hostility good for ratings and so deeply ingrained in most of the people that are supposed to cover this White House that this is the this is not a a uh, a bug. This is a feature. <laughs> I mean, I, that's just the thing. If you look at the their ratings, if you look at CNN, NBC. Um, half of these uh, NPR, if you look at their ratings, nobody's paying attention anymore. People know that they're misleading the American public. And I think eventually, um, when it finally reaches that, that uh, I guess, tipping point, there is going to be major reform where <laughs> hopefully they'll, they'll actually get back to being journalists. Lucian Wintrich is White House correspondent for uh, Gateway Pundit. Lucian, thank you so much for joining and uh, keep on doing your stuff down there in D.C. Appreciate it. Thank you. Our team, 844-900-2825 on the phones. Uh, we are going to head into a break. But before I do that, actually, let me just say for a moment, the idea that there's an InfoWars correspondent. I mean, if it's if it's not Alex Jones himself, it's a little disappointing because there is a part of me that, that remembers. Did, some of you probably know what I'm talking about. There was that exchange some years ago between um, Piers Morgan and uh, and Alex Jones, where Alex Jones went on went on Piers Morgan's CNN show, which was a terrible show, and I, I cannot believe that CNN thought that they should pay this guy millions of dollars to show up unprepared and just sort of spout off about American politics, particularly guns, as a British guy who is not uh, well, well completely ignorant on the topic of the of the Second Amendment, but. Uh, he's he's there. He's like, you're. You, oh, we have Alex Jones now on on the show. Oh, hello, Alex Jones. And then you had Alex Jones be like, if you come for our guns, seventeen seventy six. Well, he he got all crazy on him. That was I was told by somebody at CNN who was a friend of mine at the time. That was the highest rated segment on Piers Morgan's show of all time. He's like, you're a very, you're a very stupid man. And then uh, and then you had Alex Jones be like. You know, you you come. Actually, Alex Jones at one point started doing his accent. Hello, I'm I'm English. My name is Piers Morgan. He tried to like do an impersonation of him. If you haven't seen the clip of Piers Morgan and Alex Jones, it's it's some good TV. I'll say that. Not not high level analysis, but it is definitely amusing. And to have Alex Jones in the briefing room and be like. Chemtrails, Illuminati, you know, the Bilderbergs, uh, excuse me, excuse me, Sean Spicer, um, is it or is it not true that, that Soros and, and the Bilderbergs, you know, are coming for the people of America? It, it would be it would be incredible to watch. So here's hoping that at some point uh, <laughs> we could see Alex Jones find his way into the, the press 
Uh, he doesn't like. He doesn't know me. Never met the guy, but he doesn't like me. I've seen that smug look before. That that satisfied. You know, this guy's government. He he, he is the government. I, I could play the whole clip for you at some point. Maybe I will. Buck Sexton hiding hiding in plain sight. I was like, oh gosh, I'm like a I'm like a website writer with with a couple of roommates trying to make a living. But I I need to get called out by this. Uh, to borrow from what was the term that Trump used again? Nut job, I think he said. Um, yeah, allegedly said. I should note, allegedly of Comey, allegedly. All right, we'll hit a quick break here, team. Eight four four nine hundred two eight two five. We'll be right back. Team, I want to give you continuing updates here for the uh, breaking news story. Uh, terrible news out of. The United Kingdom uh, at an Ariana Grande concert in Manchester. Uh, there was an explosion of some kind. I've seen reports from British uh, uh, from uh, British authorities that up to twenty may have already twenty fatalities uh, may have occurred. Uh, many wounded. There are uh, lots of eyewitness reports of uh, just people running in terror. Gruesome imagery. Uh, individuals uh, hobbling away with uh, terrible um, open wounds. It, it's if this isn't terrorism, I don't know what it what it could possibly be. I mean, I would say it's you know, you're in ninety nine percent certain at this point that this is terrorism. In fact, I've seen uncon- unconfirmed reports as well from uh, from news sources and uh, official accounts in the United Kingdom that this may have been a a nail bomb uh, again unconfirmed so I'll keep updating you as we go here this is live and breaking as I am on air with you um, and uh, this is a, a it's a nightmare situation you have a, a concert going on here I believe the concert had just ended people were exiting. And that is, for those of you who um, don't know, just as an aside, I was formerly NYPD Intelligence Division for Counterterrorism here in New York City and also part of the CIA's Counterterrorism Center. Uh, so this is bringing me back to my uh, former life and previous career. Uh, a concentration of individuals uh, in Exville or leaving a crowded venue like a concert is from the terrorist perspective. And again, it's not yet confirmed that it's terrorism, but from a terrorist perspective, that funnel effect of people leaving a venue um, would be a, a very uh, high, high on the target list. Uh, it is a, a way of increasing the casualties. And so you have a mass casualty incident. I know that when you think of a, a concert, there's a lot of people, but it's also in a very big space. So just one, a a bomb that you would smuggle in, uh, assuming this was in fact a bomb, and I, I think we can we can assume that at this point, based on the reports, it was a bomb. The question is just who put it there, and what kind of bomb, and uh, all details that the authorities and everyone are are feverishly looking for right now. Um, but placing a bomb at the end of the concert in a an area of egress where you'd have a concentration of civilians a concentration of targets uh, that would from the terrorist perspective be be a choice that they would make um, because the blast radius of it you want a if you're again a terrorist you're trying to inflict mass casualties the blast radius 
it, it, you would also want it to be in a an area that is um, not just densely packed, of course, but also with. Uh, I'm not sure what the I haven't seen physically what it looks like in the exit area, though I am looking at footage right now of people running away and and uh, running away from the explosion, and uh, I would guess that also it was in an interior part of the stadium where uh, you know shrapnel would have. Uh, the most uh, vicious and, and devastating effect. So in every sense we can see so far, it certainly uh, seems to be terrorism. Uh, we don't have more details than that. Uh, and British authorities are uh, feverishly trying to deal with the wounded. The wounded are still streaming out from uh, this incident. Um, I, I know that there'll be a lot of speculation tonight as to the uh, likely uh, likely perpetrator here, um, just based on the numbers and the choice of target, you'd have to think that some uh, jihadist is the likeliest, although I cannot say that I, 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 I can't assess that yet because we don't have any anything beyond just it seems to be a bomb mass casualty incident at an Ariana Grande concert. Again, this is breaking news. It's all happening Right now, as I am on air with you, um, there are a lot of news reports coming in. Some of them are going to be uh, inaccurate. That's just the nature of an event like this. The authorities are going to be not only are are not only dealing with the immediate uh, horrific aftermath of this uh, this bombing, but also now you have a search for the perpetrators will be underway right away. Um, and a right alongside that in terms of top priorities for counterterrorism in the UK, uh, the, you know, their, their authorities, their, their equivalent of the, uh, of the FBI and, um, perhaps, uh, domestic intelligence service as well, MI5. I mean, they're, they're going to be looking at, uh, whether there's follow on attacks plan I and mean, trying to prevent if this was in fact a cell, uh, a terrorist cell that was operating, uh, that planted this one bomb there could be others that are in progress right now there could be other attacks that are in progress i i don't want to go too far down these analytic lines because we we just do not have much more information um uh they're treating it as an incident of i see this now the bbc is treating it as a possible terror incident well i mean that's not that's clearly not definitive but it certainly looks like terrorism in, in every respect and uh, you have to figure that this is uh, likely to be an incident perpetrated by either. If someone's asking me what the, we can speak in probability, how about that? I, I can't give you analysis yet because we don't have enough of a fact pattern. But if this was in fact a nail bomb, and it, uh, I don't know what else it would it would be other than a, a bomb at this point. Uh, there were, if you're wondering, well, Buck, why are you even suggesting it could be anything else? There were some. Uh, some early on reports saying that they thought it might be some horrific uh, malfunction of electrical equipment, but that's, it's not, if if, fatality, once you're talking about large numbers of fatalities, I mean, there's, uh, this is not a a speaker that short circuited and electrocuted a few people. And obviously it went, it it exploded. So we're looking at a bomb and now we have to deal, we have to look at what the possible um, scenarios are for who planted this bomb and, and how it, um, you know how how it may be the first of several. If you look at the night of the Bataclan massacre in Paris, when keep in mind, again there were suicide bombs 
in Paris, uh, in France, that were detonated outside of Stade de France, which is the biggest soccer stadium in in Paris, I believe it might be the biggest soccer stadium in the whole country. And I think that also happened towards the end of the game. Because think about it, all of you have been to sports arenas of different kinds. At the end of the game, everyone's, they're also tired. They're funneled into certain areas uh, to exit. They're packed in, they're slow moving. If you're looking for a, uh, a situation where you have densely packed soft targets, and it's a horrific way to think about this, but as we're analyzing from the terrorist mindset to make sure that we also know what may be coming uh, next here and you know first you establish that it's terrorism then you got to figure out what the next target set may be and you got to get this guy or guys we don't know what's uh, we don't know how many are involved yet um i again I, i wish i could bring you more details i'm just looking at all the news reports here we've got everybody here pulling this together as quickly as we can um, but uh, it's almost, almost certainly terrorism, very likely jihadist terrorism. And if you were to ask me on the spot, I'd say uh, either an ISIS director or an ISIS sympathizer. So those would be, that's the uh, place where analysis is. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. Team, we have uh, more updates uh, for you on what's going on right now with this incident. Um, uh, we have stories of uh, from eyewitnesses of carnage and and mayhem and destruction. Uh, we have Manchester police are warning people to stay away, stay away from the scene. Uh, A father described seeing, quote, carnage everywhere. He said, as I was waiting, an explosion went off and it threw me through the first set of doors about 30 feet to the next set of doors. When I got up and looked around, there were about 30 people scattered everywhere. Some of them looked dead. They might have been unconscious, but there were a lot of fatalities. Uh, My first thing was to run in the stadium and try and find my wife and daughter. When I couldn't find them, I looked back outside and the police fire and ambulance were there. And I looked at some of the bodies trying to find my family Luckily, they weren't there. I managed to find them outside the arena and get them back to the hotel. That's an eyewitness account being reported here. Um, this is uh, this, this is terrorism, and this is uh, a, a horrific event that we they, obviously no one's been captured yet. There could be follow-on attacks planned. Um, yeah, uh, this is uh, an incident we have to keep a very close eye on. All right, uh, look. Uh, we are we're joined by our friend uh, David Ifun now. He is the editor in chief of the Algaminer, uh, which is a, a newspaper you should all become familiar with online. You can go to algaminer.com for his latest. David, I know we have you on to talk about Trump and Israel today, but uh, do, do you have any any reactions or any thoughts? I mean, clearly, uh, this is an incident that um, is going to be the the focus of of all the media and and everyone around the world now for for at least the next twenty four hours. Yes, I think that's uh, absolutely right, Buck, and it's always a pleasure to, to, to be with you and to be back with you. It's, it's really tragic. You know, the atmosphere in Israel today was one that was uh, hopeful, it was, it was forward-looking, uh, and, and this is something that's kind of thrown the, the, the new cycle and, and uh, suddenly world leadership in, into disarray. But uh, the themes really overlap. 
the themes overlap, and uh, one one of the themes that that uh, and of course we we don't know we haven't confirmed yet whether this is actually a case of terrorism or not, but it certainly has all the hallmarks. Uh, one of the things one of the themes that came up repeatedly was the president's referral to the common fight against ISIS. Uh, an attack like this certainly has uh, has the hallmarks of an ISIS type attack. Also, the fight against Iran, which which shares a radical ideology, albeit from a different point of view, uh, and has much more sub- substantial tools even than even than ISIS had. And of course, there's this insistence from this administration that the Palestinian Authority, which pays the terrorists who have created this type of carnage in Israel for decades. And uh, this administration is finally calling on them to stop those terror payments and to stop glorifying these terrorists. So there certainly is a degree of overlap, but I have no question that the positive atmosphere that we started to see uh, out of Jerusalem is going to be now obscured completely with uh, this great tragedy. Uh, David, we're having a very tough time hearing you, my friend. Can you can you get us back on another line with a better connection? Because I can barely hear you, which means the audience can barely hear you as, uh, hear you as well. So, guys, can we try to reconnect with Dodd with a, with a clear connection so we can talk to him uh, more about, uh, well, this, this incident? And also, uh, we can talk to him about what's going on today with Trump in, uh, in Israel. Um, I'm, I'm still looking at news reports as they're coming in. I mean, this is this is terrorism. Um, it, that that much is is clear. The report about two explosions, I think, is noteworthy because it may have been uh, the the first uh, the first incident, the first um, the first uh, bomb that went off may have been intended to force people into an even more condensed area. And from there, um, there may have been a secondary explosion meant to increase casualties even further because we are seeing reports of two explosions. Let me. Um, so uh, UK counterterrorism unit is treating Manchester incident as possible terror. I mean, it, this, this is terrorism. Um, so any more updates we have for you, I, I will give you more of my sense of what's going on here. Um, but uh, uh, we've got David Afoon back on. He's editor-in-chief of the Algaminer. David, sorry about that. We need to be able to hear you, though, sir. Um, so tell me about Trump in Israel today, and if we have any breaking news on the terror attack in the U.K., we'll get to that. Well, I don't know how much you heard uh, before in terms of what I was saying, Buck, but uh, the atmosphere in Jerusalem was something that was, that was very positive. Uh, you have the Israelis and the U.S. and on the same page, almost on exactly the same page, on a whole list of issues for the first time, certainly in eight years, and maybe even closer to the same page than they were under the Bush administration. On issues like Iran, on issues of challenging the extremism in the region, certainly on, on an issue like ISIS, which, which as I just uh, mentioned, the attack that we're seeing now in Manchester has all the hallmarks of an ISIS-style attack. And also on the same issue of uh, the Palestinian Authority payments to terrorists, you know, of course, Israel has, has, has faced this type of terrorism for a long time. I mean, as the second intifada, we saw these type of attack on, on, on youth, on, on nightclubs and, and on uh, young people and, and uh, you know, public events in this type of setting at a Passover Seder, etc. And to this day, those terrorists, the perpetrators of these attacks are sitting in Israeli prisons and they're receiving a stipend from the Palestinian Authority. And now for the first time, you have a president, President Trump, 
who's insisting that this is something that the Palestinians take responsibility for. So as I said, while uh, what we're seeing now coming out of Manchester is going to cast a, a shadow over the positive atmosphere that President Trump has brought with him to U.S.-Israel relations and, and, and even to Saudi relations and renewing relationships with friends and allies. Uh, having said that, even though the shadow is being cast, there is certainly an overlap and, and, and some common themes because this is a type of, of terrorism, and of course we have yet to, for it to be confirmed, but it has certainly looks like it, the type of terrorism that's plagued the Middle East for such a long time. And uh, obviously the, the Israelis have a lot that they can share with the Western world, with the Brits, with the Americans, on how to stand up to this, how to handle it, security uh, measures, and also responding to this kind of catastrophe and chaos, which is very rare for, for, for uh, law enforcement officials in, in the north of England. We've got David Ifoon on the line, who's the editor-in-chief of the Algaminer. David, people have been talking a lot today about the peace process, specifically that Donald Trump may be able to help. Of course, he's not the primary actor in this. It would be Prime Minister Netanyahu, the Israeli Knesset, and uh, Palestinian negotiators on the other side. Uh, but there seems to be a renewed hope for the peace process. Let me ask you first, where does the peace process stand? And then then let's talk a little bit about whether you think this optimism is warranted yet. Well, I think, first of all, in terms of where it stands right now, you have a situation where it's been in, in, in deadlock for such a long time. You had President Obama, who moved far towards the Palestinian side, as, as we've ever seen. And the response to that was that, the Palestinians couldn't be holier than the Pope, so they climbed back up their tree and they disappeared from the negotiating table. Now, uh, just the, the presence of, of a new administration in Washington and certainly President Trump's rhetoric has brought both sides to a point where they're very eager to please the president and, and neither of them want to be the first ones to say no. So what will the next steps look like? Certainly there are demands from the Israeli side and there are demands from the Palestinian side. Uh, at this point, they haven't got to the, to the level of specific. They're talking, certainly the president's talking in much more uh, general terms uh, about what it would look like, what it might look like. Having said that, uh, so, so we'll see what the next steps are. Having said that, there are two major changes that this administration has brought to the table. The first change, the first major change, is that the administration is saying, we are not going to impose a solution. We are not going to predetermine what the outcome is going to be. The Obama administration, certainly with its moves in the international arena and in the U.N., had a very specific requirement of what the outcome was going to be and did everything they could to force Israel's hand, force the outcome, force the, ba the boundaries and, and the borders that we've been talking about. The Trump administration is saying we want to be a facilitator, we want to empower, but we do not want to impose. And the second thing, and this is, this is actually fundamental, the, the, the fundamental shift, is that for such a long time there's been this, this ideology or this theory of what we call linkage, that the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is right at the core of all the chaos in the Middle East because it fuels fundamentalism, it fuels radicalism, it's used as a terror recruiting tool. This was a claim for such a long time from the State Department, certainly from the diplomats in Europe, who have been making the, the, the very same claim. While President Trump was coming uh, to the table today, he made very, very clear that Iran is actually the center point of regional instability. Iran is, is uh, the meddling power, the number one state sponsor of terrorism. And while President Trump would love to see movements on the Palestinian issue, 
He does not see this as the center point of, of regional instability. The Iranians are the ones that hold that title under the new administration, and that's certainly uh, how, what, what uh, the Israelis have felt and held for a long time. Speaking to David Afoon, editor-in-chief of the Algeminer. David, as I look at the uh, the updates here on this uh, incident, this apparent terrorist act in the United Kingdom, it's being reported 19 killed, 50 injured so far in this uh, in this uh, bombing at a at a concert in Manchester. Um, what do you think if uh, if Prime Minister Netanyahu was able to, and I'm sure he will be able to over the course of the next 24 hours? to trans, transmit some, uh, some philosophical assistance to President Trump for how to deal with jihadist terrorism, assuming that's what we find out that has happened in the United Kingdom here. What do you think that would sound like? What lessons should the Trump administration take from the Israeli fight against uh, jihadism and, and terror against civilians? Well, you know something, Baka, it's such a good question to ask. And, uh, you know, the truth is that there, there are a lot of amazing things that the Israelis have, have uh, exported, or, or whether it's, you know, irrigation and uh, startup culture. And, and, you know, this has all been very well documented. But the truth is, and, and tragically, it's Israel's experience in, in combating terror over, over the last decade that is increasingly becoming one of the most sought-after commodities and the gifts that the Jewish state has to give to the world. The first book that Prime Minister Netanyahu ever wrote was on exactly this subject and how to police a threat from within a society without curtailing the freedoms of that society. And uh, it's actually a positive book. It's an optimistic book. And it has, uh, you know, a really, a really great uh, outline of, of uh, the approach that law enforcement officials can take. And Israel, to, to a great degree, has been successful in this regard. But I think the first thing is, you, 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 you have to be absolutely unforgiving in terms of, of this kind of ideology, uh, unaccepting, uh, unaccepting of, of, uh, of uh, its preaching, unaccepting of its support, and uh, to galvanize um, all groups to be able to address it. Uh, I think on the intelligence front, uh, it's also vital. You know, the Israelis are using now uh, algorithmic intelligence. They're monitoring things on social media. There is certainly a component of profiling. For example, if you get on an Israeli plane, uh, you're going to be profiled. You're profiled, and it's, and it's, uh, it's effective. I mean, there are, there are politically incorrect components to it. When you go to fly to Israel, they, they ask you questions about your family and who you know in the country and do you speak Hebrew. And this is how they, they analyze who is likely to be a threat and who is not likely to be a threat. The key is not to worry about political correctness, but when it comes to saving lives and preserving lives, to do what's effective. And the Israelis have really perfected uh, these mechanisms, and they are, they are anxious, they're delighted, they're, they're uh, always willing to be able to share this with law enforcement agencies around the world. And I hope that uh, those law enforcement agencies can recognize it and take advantage of it and start to implement it, because Lord knows, that what Israel has been experiencing now for decades is only growing and increasing in, in, in Western countries. David Afoon is the editor-in-chief of the Algeminer. Uh, David, always great to have your perspective. Thank you for making the time tonight. Always a pleasure, Buck. Uh, team, to update you, 19 dead in Manchester, England. This is breaking news. It's just been uh, occurring and getting updates
throughout the show tonight. Uh, 19 killed, 50 wounded in a terrorist attack in Manchester in the United Kingdom. It was at the end of an Ariana Grande concert. Uh, just just horrific. Um, police are scrambling to well first have first uh, well to have first responders uh, deal with the the incident with the wounded and also now to find the perpetrators and to prevent follow-on attacks. It is a race against time. We'll continue to follow this very closely and um, if you have any any thoughts that you'd like to share, our phones are open here. We are live 844-900 buck 844-900-2825. We'll be back right after this break. Breaking news of a terrorist attack, an apparent terrorist attack in the United Kingdom. 19 dead at an Ariana Grande concert in Manchester. Manchester Arena is the largest indoor arena in Europe. Has a capacity for 21,000 people. Um, from what we know, two explosions uh, so far based on uh, eyewitness uh, eyewitness reports and 19 confirmed dead by the authorities. 19 people have already been killed in this uh, terrible incident. Um, we also are seeing reporting coming in from eyewitnesses that there were uh, bolts and nails, uh, so a, a shrapnel bomb. Uh, it perhaps could even be similar to what we saw in the Boston Marathon bombing. Uh, where you had a pressure cooker uh, bomb as the as the detonation device, um, we're going to get more details on this as as they come out. But right now, it, it seems quite clear we're dealing with an act of terrorism, and uh, the the authorities will be in a race against time to try and uh, prevent another incident like this. Uh, whenever you have a cell that's gone operational, especially if you're talking about a jihadist cell, there's a very real possibility, very very real likelihood of a follow-on attack uh, elsewhere. So we will uh, continue to follow this as closely as we can. Again, my, my background is uh, somewhat useful here in the analysis of this. I was a CIA counterterrorism officer and uh, counterterrorism analyst in the CTC, the Counterterrorism Center, and also NYPD Intelligence Division here in New York City, dealing with terrorism incidents. In fact, I worked the Times Square bombing in 2010, uh, where the perpetrator was Faisal Shahzad, um, and his explosive device did not function as intended, thank thank heavens. Uh, that's why there were no fatalities, no injuries. Unfortunately, we can't say the same tonight in the UK. 19 dead, 50 wounded, and... Uh, just an, an atrocity um, at a at a concert at a at a concert for people to just try and, and have a night out. Now, we really are in a, in a uh, we'll talk more about this in a few minutes. We're, we're in a war for civilization, and we're in a war against savages um, who just have no decency and have embraced darkness and have embraced evil. Ed in Ohio. Um, WHLO. Ed, what are your thoughts? Well, I was just listening about this terrorist attack in Manchester, and years ago I read this book, By Way of Deception, this guy, Victor Ostrovsky, um, he was a Mossad agent, got disillusioned with the system. He was talking about this Sinem. They were um, Jews. They would help a Mossad agent in any country. And he said that, like, for instance, you got shot, 
the doctor might not help you, but he would not rat you out. So I'm just wondering, like, in a mosque, if, if you heard somebody planning to blow up the Walmart, I mean, you want to give everyone the benefit of the doubt, but what would they do? What would they do? Would they rat you out to the police, or would they just go to the other Walmart? Um. I'm 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 not totally clear on on your question. You're asking me if if in a mosque somebody overhears someone plotting to bomb a Walmart, what would they hypothetically do? Exactly. Well, it depends on who overhears it. I think uh, I think uh, a vast majority of a vast majority of uh, of people in, in certainly in, in this country and and around the world, if they heard that there was a terrorist act in 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 progress, they would they would report it. Not everybody would report it, so I, I can't speak to a, a hypothetical without any more details than than that. But Ed, thank you for calling in. We've got to go into a break here in a second. Um, I don't know, uh, uh, man. This is it's going to be a long night in the UK, and I just think about the uh, it's it's hard. You think about the families here. Uh, Nineteen people killed, very likely given the concert that we're talking about here. Very likely young people, just devastating. Uh, we'll go into a break. We're going to cover this live. Stay with me. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. Breaking news of a horrific bombing in Manchester, England. Here's what we know so far. 19 dead. Uh, dozens more wounded. It was at an Ariana Grande concert in Manchester in the United Kingdom. The concert at the Manchester Arena, capacity 21,000 people. Uh, The concert had finished and uh, those in attendance were exiting. While they were exiting the stadium, it has been reported that two blasts were heard. uh, And then there was a, a rush of people terrified as a result of the explosions uh, to try and, and get away from what has been des- described as a scene of carnage. Uh, there's a lot of uh, additional reporting right now on social media, uh, eyewitness reports, the, the various news stations, uh, Sky News, the BBC, and others saying this is being treated as a terrorist incident. Uh, it is not yet confirmed by the authorities, but we can tell based on all the signatures here and what we've seen so far, it, it is almost... Uh, beyond comprehension this could be anything other than a terrorist attack at a uh, major concert uh, in the united kingdom in in manchester 19 dead 50 injured is the current uh, report as we see it here so uh, there are also reports coming in of nail of nails and uh, of other shrapnel that were found at the scene afterwards uh, which would make it uh, that th- make it very likely this was a a bomb that has been used elsewhere a, a a simple shrapnel effect device intended to wound and maim uh, as many people as possible. Um, not clear yet what the detonator was. Not clear yet uh, if this, as we saw in the Boston Marathon bombing, involved a pressure cooker in a uh, backpack. Not difficult at all to put one of these devices together if one so chooses to engage in a uh, such a, a horrific terrorist act. Um, we are not yet at the point where there have been any claims of responsibility. If it is, in fact, uh, the Islamic State that is responsible for this, either through a proxy, somebody who 
is doing this in the name of ISIS or perhaps uh, al-Qaeda or one of its offshoots. It, it, we would likely hear about this within 24 to 48 hours. Uh, usually ISIS does claim responsibility for attacks. It has a media wing where it will say that this was done in, in the name of, of the Islamic State. We have not yet seen any such claim. And uh, there was there's now a report of a secondary device found near the arena as well. Now, in a lot of I, I worked in the CIA's counterterrorism center as well as the NYPD's intelligence division for counterterrorism, and uh, in a lot of the incidents that we've seen in the past where there's a a bomb like this, there'll be reports of a secondary device or additional devices. Um, but that can often be not always, and that's what has to be treated. Anytime there's even the slightest suspicion, they have to clear the area, make sure all civilians, all personnel that are not part of uh, police and bomb disposal get out of the get out of the area, get out of the, any possible future blast radius. But with uh, the sightings or the possible sightings of additional devices, it's oftentimes the case that uh, it's just an, an abundance of caution that anything that is left behind, any paper bag, anything that could conceal uh, a device and is suspicious may be cordoned off initially um, so that there is not there are not additional casualties that could have been avoided. Um, again, Buck Sexton here with you with the breaking news of an apparent terrorist attack in the United Kingdom, a bomb at an Ariana Grande concert. Uh, right afterwards, now looking at the possible uh, an analysis of terrorist tactics here, that the bombing would have occurred after the uh, after the concert uh, would be in keeping with other incidents where the the terrorist would seek to uh, ex- explode the device in a in a packed confined area where they also know that there would be a lot of individuals traversing at a certain time. So in a, in a concert venue, yes, there's a lot of people, but they're spread out. And even in an indoor concert like this with a 20,000 plus capacity, there's a lot of a lot of space. And when you're dealing with explosives and the blast radius and a shrapnel effect, uh, the terrorists would seek to have a more condensed uh, target set here. Of course, in this case, the target set being men, women and children, civilians trying to enjoy um, a night out. Um and I'll, I'll give you more of my thoughts on this fight and and what we're up against in a few minutes. But just on the um, on the specifics, on the tactics of the incident here uh, of this this breaking news, terrible breaking news out of the United Kingdom that a an explosion has killed 19 people. It is being treated now officially. I see as a terrorist attack. It's been clear for some time that that's what this is. Looks to be a nail bomb. Uh, Multiple bombs, in fact, have been reported, or at least multiple explosions have been reported. There are reports of shrapnel found at the scene. This was a a deliberate incident. And looking at the target set, looking at the target set uh, and the way that they set this up, the timing of it um, points to a terrorist act, uh, perhaps a, a jihadist terror attack, although we'll see about claims of responsibility in the hours ahead. Uh, But knowing the routes and times of individuals at a venue like this and when there'll be the densest period of civilian traffic in one area, there are limited exits from a concert venue like this. And you know that when the concert is over, a vast majority of the people will be 
traversing through those exits. And so there's a funnel effect. And that funnel effect means that there will be more people, more densely packed nearby a, a device like what we've been uh, what's been reported here as uh, the uh, as, as a nail bomb. Uh, as a shrapnel effect device. We, we don't have more specifics on it yet. We certainly don't have any word on uh, its packaging or, or how it was detonated. It does not appear to be a suicide incident based on a, based on all the reporting we've seen so far. Uh, usually that's that, that's apparent pretty early on, especially from eyewitness reports. Oftentimes, if it would be a suicide bombing incident, you would hear about someone yelling uh, you know, that if it's a jihadist terror incident, which is not yet uh, what authorities are saying this is, but I'm just trying to extrapolate from what we know right now. If it were a jihadist terrorist incident and a suicide bombing, there would likely already be reports of uh, individuals yelling uh, as they as they do uh, Allahu Akbar before the detonation. Uh, nothing like that has been reported, so that does not seem to indicate that this would have been a jihadist suicide attack. It could still just be a a jihadist incident or it could be some other there there is the possibility of another extremist or terrorist group or ideology behind this uh, certainly the numbers would point towards this being a jihadist incident based on what we've seen in the uk in recent years uh, but there have been other uh, terrorist groups active in the uk in the past uh, most likely overwhelming likelihood here is that this would be a jihadist a jihadist attack and as i was saying about the uh about two explosions at the end of the concert it is similar in terms of the timing to what happened the night of the Bataclan massacre you'll recall from that multi-pronged terrorist attack in Paris over a year ago um, which came uh, a matter of months after the Charlie Hebdo massacre which was a, a jihadist attack against the cartoonists of Charlie Hebdo then you had a multi-pronged uh, complex attack in the city of Paris against numerous venues. The Bataclan Concert Hall, again, a concert hall, uh, which there's there's a similarity right there. Um, the Bataclan Concert Hall, where there was the systematic murder and slaughter of, uh, of over 100 people. And you had at the Stade de France a suicide bombing where an individual blew himself up outside of uh, the French soccer stadium on the outskirts of Paris, the Stade de France. So you could see some there, there, and it was at the end of the game, if if memory serves, if I remember this correctly, it was towards the end of the game when people would have been leaving. So uh, there are some similarities we can draw from that. Again, breaking news here, um, Buck Sexton with you live as we are uh, following this terrorist attack in Manchester, England. You have uh, 19 reported dead and 50 wounded at the at an Ariana Grande concert reports of two bombs going off at the end of the concert um, and we are looking for more details uh, we're joined uh, we're joined by my friend Tom Rogan right now uh, he is a national security writer for a national review uh, and a counterterrorism analyst as well Tom good to have you on Good to be with you, Buck. Thanks for having me on. Tom, what do we know so far? Um, so I think the, the focal point to be taking away is that uh, the attack, as you suggest, bears a lot of the hallmarks uh, towards jihadist organizations. I think two concerns immediately come up. Number one, the to targeting profile 
um, you know, a, a relatively, uh, you know, semi-hardened target in the sense that it's a concert. Uh, there would be some security, although not as much as perhaps in the United States. In fact, not as much. Um, but there's also a issue in terms of um, the children who were gathering there and the size of the explosive device that was clearly used. All that, to me, suggests uh, someone who knows more than the average, you know, Omar Mateen wannabe um, and, and, and perhaps a more concerted self structure, especially in the context uh, of this being perhaps a, a uh, bomb that is was deployed without, um, you know, a, a suicide bomber, essentially, that it was planted. So where is that individual or individuals? Right. It could have been a command detonated device, which means someone could have left something behind and, and been quite a distance away. Um uh, not not clear yet on on how the detonation or could have been a timer. We'll, we'll find out more about that as the bomb squad, uh, as the the uh, authorities, emergency authorities in London do their work. Uh, by the way, we're joined by Tom Rogan again. That we're bringing you up to speed here on this horrific terrorist attack in Manchester, England. Nineteen dead, fifty wounded at an Ariana Grande concert. Uh, authorities have locked down the scene. They are trying to prevent. Follow-on attacks, first responders are dealing with uh, what is described as a scene of carnage, a lot of uh, horrific wounds on site as a result of what uh, reportedly is a nail-bombing incident. And and now we're also going to turn our attention to the possibility of follow-on attacks. Uh, Tom, what are are the procedures going to be here from the perspective of of, uh, British authorities after this? Up, did we just, we just dropped, oh, we lost Tom. Well, I can tell you. From uh, my perspective on the uh, NYPD side of it, from the counterterrorism, uh, the counterterrorism policies that we would enact here or the counterterrorism book that we follow after this incident, you're going to have a an increased security presence at uh, facilities uh, across the UK. In fact, even the NYPD now here in New York City where I'm doing the show will be on elevated alert It's standard procedure in a lot of high-profile terrorist targets, major cities that have had uh, terrorist, major terrorist incidents and are a constant target for terrorism to take an elevated posture, elevated security posture in response to an incident like this. Uh, again, uh, updating you here with this terrorist attack in Manchester, Ariana Grande concert finishes up, two bombs reportedly go off. Uh, we are being told they were nail bombs or uh, shrapnel shrapnel devices intended to uh, create as much uh, chaos, bloodshed, and murder and mayhem as possible. Uh, 19 dead, 50 wounded. Uh, the explosions came at the end of the concert when there would have been the greatest concentration of individuals uh, near the near the ticket booth and exit, which is where the bombs uh, apparently went off. So the timing of this is is clearly uh, a part of the target set. And uh, now they are, as I said, in a race against time to try and stop the next attack from happening as well as uh, find the perpetrators of this one. It's very early on. Um, a manhunt, a massive manhunt in the UK, will no doubt it is underway already. And they're going to be both tending to the, the wounded as as well as trying to piece together very quickly a picture of what happened here so they can find whoever's responsible and stop them from another incident like this. If you have the technical know-how to build one shrapnel device, unfortunately, that individual or individuals, if it is a cell, uh, would certainly be capable of another, of uh, 
placing and detonating another device like this. So the uh, authorities are under a tremendous urgency and pressure to figure out what happened here and, and move on this as, as quickly as they possibly can. Um, it does seem that the likeliest perpetrator here would be uh, a jihadist uh, a jihadist terrorist, whether an individual or working together as part of an active cell. We do not have any confirmation of that. If it is the Islamic State or someone acting on behalf of the Islamic State, it is likely we would see a claim of responsibility within 24 hours or so of this incident. It usually happens quickly, within a matter of days, if not sooner. So um, we now look at this and, and, of course, also turn and are forced to ask questions. Uh, and if you're just joining us, 19 dead, 50 wounded in a terrorist attack in Manchester, England. Uh, we've got multiple fatal. Uh, well, 19 dead. More fatalities may be added to that list because of the grievous and horrific wounds that were suffered at what we believe at this point was a shrapnel device, an explosive device packed with nails and bolts so that the concussive force of the blast uh, would not be the only aspect of it that was lethal, the, the shrapnel. Um, would have had devastating effect in a packed area of the uh, Manchester arena. Um, now people will turn around and ask questions. They'll want to know why. There's never a good answer to that. Uh, I've worked terrorist cases in the past, and I've worked on the intelligence side of trying to prevent, uh, trying to prevent terror, international terrorist acts, as well as uh, find terrorists so they can be taken off the battlefield. Um, this is the unfortunate state of the world that we live in now where you have ideologies of hate and uh, mayhem and uh, I would say anarchy, but unfortunately they, they do have a cohesive worldview. Um, I, I do not know yet that this is a jihadist incident. The numbers would overwhelmingly point to a, a terrorist act like this, given all the indicators and factors that we have. It is overwhelmingly likely that this was in fact a jihadist terrorist incident. Uh, this is a reminder, uh, this is a reminder, ladies and gentlemen, that we are in a war for the very heart of civilization itself. When we face enemies, jihadists, or if somehow this were other extremists, whoever they may be, but I'm, I am betting it as jihadists, and they seek to destroy our very way of life. Uh, they cannot be bought off, they cannot be placated, they cannot be negotiated with they have adopted an ideology of evil that seeks to destroy our very way of life and seeks uh, to create um, divisions and unrest and hatred among all of us uh, and, and to undermine our very societies. They use the freedom from within uh, our free society and that in the UK and Europe and our allies around the world. Uh, they use our freedoms against us, um, and that's why this is an existential fight. Uh, that is what we face here with, with this kind of terrorism. Make no mistake about it. All right, I'll have uh, just a final update for you again. Buck Sexton coming to you with news, uh, terrible news of a terrorist attack, 19 dead, 50 wounded in Manchester, England, in an Ariana Grande concert. Well, it's a very dark day, unfortunately, with... Uh, this terrorist attack in the UK, 19 dead, 50 wounded, that number likely to rise. Um, I appreciate you giving me your time as we keep you updated on this. Um, we are in a war for civilization, my friends. I'll be talking to you again about it tomorrow. Until then, indeed.
Shields High.